0: No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you for your words and ask that as precious as these words are, they would not be words that fall on deaf ears, but rather ears of faith that receive them as the very words of promise, of life, of hope, of joy, of comfort, of peace, of all that you intend them to be. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I want to begin by asking a highly sophisticated theological question, and I don't normally do this, but it will hopefully help you to crystallize some of the thoughts that are going to emerge in the next uh, few minutes. And the question goes like this, and uh, just as a brief warning, typically the answer that I believe to be true has been embraced by heretics over the course of church history. Uh, That shouldn't worry you, though. Um, If Adam had not sinned, would the Son of God become incarnate? If Adam had not sinned, would the Son of God become incarnate? I told you that's a pretty uh, serious theological uh, question. And it has been uh, debated and discussed by theologians over the centuries. Uh, Some are of the mindset, this is uh, nonsense. He did sin, let's get on with it. There are those types of people. You know, matter of fact, what happened? Let's deal with it. Others, you know, they uh, think this is a great time to speculate and think about these things. I personally would do so not over a coffee. I warned the people earlier, don't come ask me after what my view is when I'm holding a coffee. Only if I'm drinking wine, and then maybe even then you won't get an answer. The reason it is important, of course, though, is because what we see here, without overstating the issue, is the very point of your existence as a Christian. And there's an old theological saying that what is first in God's intention, what is first in God's intention, is last in execution. And that means that what ends up being the last thing for you to realize as a Christian and embrace as a Christian was actually the most prominent thing in God's mind. It's a very interesting way of putting it. So if Adam hadn't sinned, would the Son of God become incarnate? Now, there's no need to answer that question, but I do want to answer the fact that Adam did sin, and Christ did become incarnate, and what that means for you and for me. And John gives us this answer in the following few verses. You see, he sees a river of the water of life. And anyone who's been sensitive to reading John, for example, not just in Revelation, but even if you go to John's gospel, will know that this water of life is not just water. In fact, he speaks to the woman at the well, and Jesus goes because he is thirsty. She goes to the well to draw water. This is the woman who says, when Messiah comes, he will tell us all these things. And Jesus gloriously says to her, I who speak to you am he. And she goes off to her village and says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. But in that narrative between the two, There is a point where Jesus says that everyone who drinks this water, that is the water from the well, will be thirsty again. And we know that to be true. But whoever drinks the water that I will give to him will never thirst. Why? Because the water that Christ gives will become a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And I think clearly There are echoes of the work of the Spirit here, which absolutely satisfies those who receive it. And here in Revelation, there is a river of the water of life. Heaven is a place where the Spirit fills all things, and it flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And when you see of God and of the Lamb, as we've seen in previous weeks, you have to understand, of course, that everything that God does towards humanity of any lasting value must happen through Jesus Christ. There is nothing that God gives to you as a Christian that is not through Christ. He never bypasses him for one moment. Everything, Christ is the voice of, Peace of God. He is the prophet of God. He is God's ruler in this world, the king of God. He's God's priest who brings you to God. Everything God does is through Christ. And in heaven, every blessing such as the Spirit flowing into you forever and ever will come from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, in glory there will also be through the middle, in verse 2, of the street of the city also on either side of the river, the tree of life. Now, where did this tree of life come from? Those of you who know Genesis well will know in chapter 2, we read of a tree. And what's interesting about the language that Moses uses there is not so much that God makes this tree, but he says About the trees, plural, in the garden, that every tree, verse 9, that is pleasant to what? The sight. Before he speaks about tasting and eating, he says the trees are pleasant for viewing. The emphasis is upon what you see. So God made up to spring every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. But then, the tree of life was where? In the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then Adam and Eve sin, and what we read in chapter 3 is after they've been kicked out of the garden, God says something remarkable. He says, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and live forever." So in the beginning, there was a tree of life. And that tree of life had eternal value. To eat from it was to live forever. And theologians believe there was a period of probation in which Adam would have obeyed God with his wife Eve. And after a period of probation, would have been able to eat from the tree of life and so lived forever. But he sinned. What does God do with that tree? That is the big question of biblical history and we find the answer right here now notice also that the tree of life is there with its 12 kinds of fruits the number of perfection yielding its fruit each month and these leaves of the tree were there for the healing of the nations this is symbolic language it's not like in heaven you're going to be sick but it's speaking about the fact that god is going to keep you there and he's going to protect you there and and guard you there and all of those things but There's also something else important about heaven. No longer will there be anything accursed. But again, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his servants will worship him. What else happened, of course, in Genesis chapter 3 is Adam's sin brought about a curse upon humanity. And it's interesting because God curses the man with specific curses related to his function in the world. And God curses the woman with regards to her specific function in the world. There are curses. So what does God do with that curse besides unleashing it upon humanity? Well, the glory of the gospel is not simply that Jesus came to die for our sins, but that he came and entered into the world that was cursed, that he took the curse upon himself, that by the sweat of his brow, he would labor all the days of his life. And then what? And then on a tree, he becomes the cursed one. Cursed is anyone who is hung upon a tree. That's in Galatians chapter 3. That comes from Deuteronomy. So when Jesus becomes a curse for us, isn't it remarkable that He actually is cursed upon a tree? And it's the tree that actually for you and for me in this life has its eternal life-giving value. It is the cross to which Christians look. God takes the very thing that was meant to give life, He curses the world, enters into the world, and takes the curse upon Himself, and we get to escape the ravages of the eternal consequences of that curse through a tree. And there we will worship Him. Now, one of the things that I most enjoy with my children is when they talk to me about what they get to do in heaven. Because of all of the nonsense kids talk about and all of the nonsense we read about and see, it's nice for them to say, well, will I get to do this in heaven and that? And a lot of parents, I think, as Christian parents, don't actually know what to say sometimes because their view of heaven is some sort of spiritual uh, reality whereby they're just free-floating spirits. And who, quite frankly, wants to just be a free-floating spirit when your whole identity as a human being is as a body and soul? That's why I never wanted to die when I was younger. I still don't want to die, to be honest, but I'm a little easier about it these days. I didn't want to die. I became a Christian. I'm like, well, I don't know if I want to be up in the clouds playing a harp but as a spirit. And how am I going to play a harp if I am a spirit? And I'm not a guy who's very good with instruments. So even that didn't appeal to me. And then I realized as I read the Bible that God intends to create a new heavens and a new earth. That there's going to be an earth in which to enjoy. And so your children speak to you and say, can I do this? Will I be able to do that? And I usually say, you're going to do whatever you want to do. And they just go, they don't realize I'm tricking them. Oh, really? Because they're a bit carnal, you know, and they just start to think, oh, well, I'll do this, that. And I said, whatever you want to do, you're going to be able to do. But I can tell you, while I don't know whether we'll have a soccer match in heaven, and I don't know whether we'll be golfing on the most beautiful golf courses, we will be worshiping Him. His servants will worship. And then comes the next... I think five words that are probably the most important words of theology that you can possibly embrace. Does that sound like an overstatement? It isn't. Verse 4 They will see his face. They will see his face. I'm not sure you understand how privileged you are to be living at this point in church history. That is to say, as good as the early church fathers were, and as good as many of the medieval church fathers were, and as good as even the Reformation theologians were, there was something that they missed, let's say. They had this belief, which is a true belief in what is called the beatific vision. The blessed vision. And when you die, you go to glory. And the vision you have is intellectual. You're going to understand things about God that you could never understand on earth. And you're going to have this awareness of all of the deep realities of theology and God. And it's going to consume you with such joy. But then these... Theologians came along a little bit after the Reformation, in the time of the Puritan era, let's say. And they started reorienting our minds around this beatific vision to include something very important for us as human beings. And that is the fact that our vision is not merely intellectual, but it's actually ocular. That is to say, with our new eyes, with our glorified bodies, we will look upon the glorified Christ Himself as God-man. And that becomes the pinnacle of our hope. That becomes the pinnacle of our eternal existence that one day you're going to actually see Jesus. But many Christians for a long time didn't actually have that truth in their hearts. And in fact, everything about the Christian life is based upon the principle of seeing Jesus. So You remember in Exodus chapter 33, Moses has a request. He wants to see God's face. And God responds, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. And then he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. And then at the end we see, Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now what happens to Moses? Spoiler alert, he dies. Sorry if you're starting out in Genesis and haven't quite got to, you know, the end of the Pentateuch. But he dies. And he goes to heaven because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses is in heaven. And I'm sure he's having a great time. And one day, if we may just use our sanctified imagination for a few minutes... Moses is in heaven and God says, do you remember that prayer, Moses? Do you remember that prayer where you said you wanted to see my face? Moses says, how could I forget? But you had to hide me because nobody can see your face and live. And God says, I'm sending you back down to earth. Now you can imagine Moses being a little bit apprehensive about this based upon previous experience. And God sends Moses back to earth, but He actually sends him to a mount. And the mount is the Mount of Transfiguration. And upon the Mount of Transfiguration, there the face of God is before Moses. There Christ is glorified. And Moses' prayer is answered. Can you just consider for a moment that God answered a prayer of Moses after Moses died? So, whatever you're praying, I can assure you God is able to do immeasurably more than you can think or imagine. And Moses is now able to bear the sight of Christ in His glory. Now, you see, this is important because as you read then the New Testament, you find that Paul has this idea that really the way in which we are sanctified, the way in which we become more and more like Christ is by looking to Christ. So in 2 Corinthians 3.18, one of my favorite verses, he says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. In other words, in this life that you live by faith, which he says in the next chapter, verse 5, in this life, the way in which you are made like Christ is by beholding Christ by faith. So what happens in the life to come? How are you transformed? It's actually the same principle, except by sight. So in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, John says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. Now here's what's important. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Why? Why will we be like Jesus Christ when He appears? John says, For we shall see him as he is. In other words, the sight of Christ is utterly transforming. Why will you be glorified? Because you will see Christ. Not just because God's powerful and God says, oh, I can make glorified humans everywhere. No, He actually lets His Son return. And in that return, it's the sight of Him that will transform your lowly body. But in this life, it's the same principle. You are transformed from one degree of glory to another by beholding Christ, by looking to Christ by faith. And that's your life. That's your eternal existence. Beholding Christ by faith in this life. Beholding Christ by sight in the life to come. And it will be forever. Look at verse 5. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light. And they will reign forever and ever. There's a dot on the wall in this church that I marked. Could you please find it for me? I did this this morning, but there are a lot more younger kids, and it completely distracted them. Because, you know, my boys are very competitive. They get it from their mother. And, you see, they thought they could still find the dot. It was an absolute disaster. I don't think they heard the rest of the sermon. Because they're looking for this dot. Now I want to assure you the dot is not where you can see it right now. So don't turn your head. But that dot and if you really have enough money I'll show you where it is after. (laughs) That dot is your life in relation to eternity and then it isn't even that. But it's to help you grasp that your life is a mere dot, a vapor in relation to eternity forever and ever and ever. And you can find that little dot and then you can realize that you go around this church, around this church for day after day. You still are not coming close to what it means forever and ever. The dot can be painful. But in light of eternity, it is not worth comparing, the Apostle Paul says. I was driving into church this morning with my dad. He won't mind this. He doesn't have a choice. But he has this Hugo Boss jacket. Very proud of this Hugo Boss jacket. I don't think he bought it brand new, to be honest, if I know my dad. But it's a Hugo Boss jacket. And we're sitting there in the car, we're listening to music, having a nice time. You know, life's good, highways flowing. Wouldn't quite say the birds are flocking and the sun is out, but it was a nice time. And then he sees there's a little moth hole in his Hugo Boss jacket. Now, I won't tell you what he said after that, but he was upset. Because then he found another little moth hole. Now you can't see the moth holes. If he just walks around and cruises around and says hi to you, no one's going to be going up and seeing the little moth hole. But you know, for him, it ruined the entire jacket. It's for sale, by the way. <laughs> Heaven's not like that. You don't think of this life in light of also that. So there's this beautiful jacket, but there's these little holes. Heaven's not like that. No. Your life now, by faith, will involve suffering. But when it comes and when it goes, it is done forever. There is nothing else that you need to worry about. You will not worry. Think about all the things you worry about each day. You worry about getting to work. You You worry if you're a a parent getting your kids to school. I even have it down to the minutes that after 8 o'clock, if I leave at 8.01 or 8.02 or 8.03, it costs me about five extra minutes. So we have to leave at 8. It's a science. And you worry about employment and you worry about what to eat. That's the worst as you get older. You start actually looking, oh, can I eat this? And you do a cost analysis benefit and you say, yeah, I can eat this. It's going to cost me, not even financially, but it'll cost my gut, cost my chin, whatever you want to say. It's going to cost. And you worry about what to eat and then you worry maybe about getting a house and maybe you worry about that. You'll never have a house as long as you live in this part of the world and you're 20 years old and you'll be living with your parents forever. And you worry about that. And then you worry about your health. And you worry about death. And you worry about finances. And you worry about a good night's sleep. And then you worry about your friendships. And you worry about extracurricular activities. You worry about the weather. You worry about your children. You worry about your parents. You worry about your spouse. You worry about your car. You worry about gas prices. You worry about safety. You worry about things that might happen. Things that definitely won't happen. You worry where to get a family doctor. You worry about so many things every single day. Can you imagine what it would be like to actually live an existence where you do not have to worry about anything? And the truth of the matter is we can't imagine because our whole lives are wrapped up in anxieties and worries every day. Some of them not even about sinful matters. Just a result of living in a fallen world We worry. But heaven is a place free from worry. And so what should your response be? It should be like Job. Job writing long before Christ came in the flesh to earth. Says, I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, He will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, I know that what... Remarkably, he says, after my skin has been destroyed, after I go from dust to dust, as I'm lying in the grave, I know that in my flesh I will see God. Whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold. You see that? What is Job concerned about? Seeing his Redeemer. My heart faints Within me. That should be the experience of every single Christian. My heart faints within me at the prospect of seeing my Redeemer with my own eyes. And John Owen makes this important point because he wrote upon this blessed vision in a way that I think has been unsurpassed by anyone to my knowledge, at least in the English language. And here's the point you need to take home to your own hearts right now. Nobody can expect in the life to come to behold Christ by sight who doesn't to some extent in this life behold Him by faith. If you'll just bear with me for a bit of sanctified imagination for another minute or two. Think of being in heaven and glory and then looking over and seeing a large mass of people. But they're away from all of God's people worshiping the Lamb at the throne. They're all there. They're in heaven. And you ask an angel, you say, what are these people doing here? I've just got to heaven. Everyone's at the throne. Everybody's worshiping the Lamb. Everybody's happy and thrilled. And these people are just standing there in a massive group. And the angel says, oh, those are all the people on earth who wanted to go to heaven. And there were many. And they believed in God. They believed in heaven. They wanted to be in heaven. but Then you say to the angel, but why are they now being escorted out of heaven? Well, you see, it's very simple. When they were on earth, they didn't want to be in heaven in the face of Jesus Christ. And on earth, they didn't look to God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so when they get to heaven, they never wanted to be in the heaven that God has made for his son. And that's incidentally why we will remain in heaven forever and ever and not sin. It's not again because God is powerful and just makes you into this being that stays there forever. The reason you will be in heaven forever and ever is because you will not sin. And why will you not sin? Because there will never be a moment when your eyes are off Jesus. Remember Peter walking on the water? And he's looking at Christ and he's walking on the water. But then I think it's in Matthew chapter 14, verse 30. He looked at something else. It's interesting the detail that Matthew adds. He saw the wind and he began to sink. When you take your eyes off Jesus in this life, when you do not live by faith in the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself up for you, you will sink. You will sink into your sin. And so the real solution for every problem in this life is to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that means looking to the tree of life, which was actually for Christ the tree of death. The tree that He hung upon is the tree that you will receive eternal life from. You could say, the Bible's all about a tree, and you could be right. You could say the Bible is all about beholding Christ, and you would be right. And the truth is, it's all of those things. Everything about your existence, everything about your eternal existence, is summed up in whether you are looking to Christ or not. And when you sin, it is almost always certainly a case you are not looking to Christ. And when you are able to live for God's glory and enjoy His presence, it's because you are beholding the Son of God by faith in this life with the hope of beholding Him by sight in the life to come. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we thank You for Your Word and ask that we may not look at the wind, so to speak, as Peter did, but we may look consistently, habitually, and joyfully to Christ, Christ crucified upon a tree, Christ glorified upon a throne, and Christ returning so that our lowly bodies may be transformed into his glorious body by the power of looking upon him. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.